You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am Louis Kornfeld. This afternoon, I am interviewing the Renaissance man, Branson Reese. Oh, hello. Branson, thanks for talking. Yeah, thanks for calling me a Renaissance man. Thank you for being so versatile. Oh, no problem. I want to start off... Before I forget this, I was talking with Lee Overtree a few days ago about Story Pirates. And he was talking about a character that you play. um, uh, uh, Scott Hartless? Scott Hartless. I listened to that part of the podcast. Yeah. And then I heard my name. And I I will listen to the rest of it, but I stopped. Okay. Did you really? Yeah, I did. Why? Uh, well, I was bit, I was like in a rush. Oh, okay. To go somewhere, I like wanted to. I still plan to listen to the rest oh, of it. Oh, okay. Not All right. Total monster. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, that's just it's just an interesting thing. Do you, if you it, like, I imagine listening to podcasts to wait to hear reference of your own name and then yep, got it done. Oh, period. yeah. End of podcast. That's how I go on Facebook. I just scroll to see if anybody references anything that I do, and then I'm done. I, okay. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, um. I just want to talk about that character for a second because sure. I find it so amusing. Can you explain? what you do as that character scott heartless yeah yeah absolutely it's part of a so there's like this writing workshop that we teach with story pirates and it's how to write like persuasive essays so the way that the way that that functions is like i come in as this they're they're like so to back up we're like in a school where this school specifically we're a school up in the bronx and i come in as this character uh named scott heartless and i like they dress me up in a suit i'm like not usually we come in as characters we like have the story pirate shirt on for this i don't he's like not He's almost like outside of the world of story pirates. He come, I just come in as this like sort of sleazy adult, like wearing a suit. Uh, I always made sure to like make sure my hair was soaking wet for this part. And I come in and I was like, all right, kids, who's ready to hear? I forget the pitch that I give, but it's just about like, I'm here to talk to you guys about, uh, I think the one Lee was talking about, was, we were talking about the environment. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm here to talk to you kids about the environment and like how to help out the environment and what we need to do to help out the environment is pave like you know like cut down all the trees and pave over it with a parking lot and like I just spend you know ten minutes talking about like how great parking lots are different examples of like why we need parking lots instead of trees and like meanwhile the kids are like freaking out and screaming at me and like gnashing their teeth and like you're crazy you're an idiot like shut up Scott Heartless and they <laughs> immediate it's like it's incredible because they immediately. They've figured out like two things. They've like figured out that I'm a character, that I'm not a real human being named Scott Heartless. And they've also figured out that it that doesn't matter and it's like fun to shout at this Scott Heartless dude. Mm. Um so that's what I do. I come in and I do that and I <laughs> the best part of it is then I leave for like three or four weeks while they're being taught persuasive essay. And the reason they're being taught persuasive uh, sorry, they're being taught persuasive essays to like present these essays to me to change my mind. Because I'm presented as like some sort of authority figure who has the power maybe potentially to like ruin their school by cutting down all these trees and putting up parking lots. So they write their essays to me. And then two or three weeks, maybe three or four weeks later, I come back into the classroom as Scott Hartless, um, just as oblivious as ever. Like, oh, yeah, I remember you kids were yelling at me. I forget why. I think it was because I was doing so well. Like, <laughs> yo, good, good to be with you kids again. And then they present their essays to me. And at the end, I like bit by bit as after every essay, I'm like, my mind has changed a little bit. And then usually like one kid in the, in the class, they'll like have picked him before or her and uh, they'll read the, their final essay to me. And that will like change my mind. I'm like, Oh, I see the light now. I'm still like, I'm still a jerk. I'm still a sleaze. But like on this one particular thing, you guys have changed my mind. 
oh, okay, I'm going to go call the mayor who I was going to talk to earlier, and I'll get him not to cut down those trees and put up a parking lot. Instead, I'll get him to cancel recess. Like, bye, kids. <laughs> and then they all scream again. <laughs> and that's Scott Heartless. It, it's almost like, like a miniature uh, Stephen Colbert for kids. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same, it's the same idea absolute, of, like, I am playing a villain to, uh, to show you guys how uh, – uh, how many holes are in the uh, the logic of these villains that you're encountering? Yeah, yeah. How long have you been with Story Pirates? I started with them in, oh God, when did I get in? Uh, September or October of 2009. Okay. Uh, and how long have you been improvising? I've been improvising. So I like started a little in high school. We had like a short form team in high school that I did. I did some stuff with them, but I, I would say like I started it seriously in 2008 when okay. I moved here. Yeah. The Because the reason I ask... Um, you as a performer have a really incredible ability to engage people very oh, directly. You know, like um, uh, um, and I was like, curious if if spending so much time working with kids and doing story part stuff has sort of like affected that for you in any way, or sort of like altered the way that you think about working with an audience or the way that you present yourself to people because you can engage people. I mean, on stage and off stage mm-hmm. in a way that I, I personally are like find baffling i wouldn't even know how to begin talking to a stranger and you have this incredible way to kind of like get people on your side or get people kind of like in the world that you're creating have you found that working with kids has helped develop that or is that sort of is that how your personality has been and you know even before you were performing uh oh first of all thank you and uh, yeah i would say it's like a little of both probably like i certainly was like that before joining story park but i like I was like that a lot as a kid, and then like in high school, that like really blossomed. We like moved around a lot when I was in like the late elementary school, middle school, mm-hmm. and that sort of like created this thing of like, all oh, right, I maybe have like three, four months here. I gotta live as much as I can with these people, you know, like get to know everyone as soon as I as much as I can, mm-hmm. and um, sort of like alerted me to like you like learn really quickly as you move around. Like, oh, nobody's paying attention to me. They're all just like concerned about themselves and they're all like self, especially at like the age that I was moving around, like everyone's self conscious. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm free to do whatever I want. And like, you know, like I have, uh, it just, it makes, I guess where I'm going with that is like, it makes you more outgoing. Yeah. So that like left me pretty outgoing. And then I went to college, which sort of zapped me for a few years of that. It was a, I like didn't have a good time there. Uh, I went to acting school and they, it was just like, uh, I mean, I met a lot of really great people there, but like sort of a negative environment that like left me very unconfident and withdrawn. And I would like go to parties and just stare at my feet. This is, you know, like I think what happens to a lot of people in their early twenties. Then I moved back to the city and I think story pirates, what it did was sort of like reawakened that part of me that had been dormant for a few years. Um, So I guess it's a little of like, it was already there, but also like hugely sort of a, um, what's the word I'm going for here? It's sort of, um, it made me able to, as a, as a performer and improviser sort of tap into that. Cause it's, it's amazing with story parents, like how, um, it really exists on a, a binary of like, you are succeeding or you are failing. And it's so easy to tell because they're kids right. and there's no, they don't know how to be good audience members, yeah. which is exactly what I, what you want. I don't ever want to play to a good audience. I want to play to an honest audience. Yeah. Um, and like kids are just the most honest audience. We're like, if they don't like what you're doing, they might get up and wander away. If they don't like what you're doing and they're in a school and they can't wander away. They'll start heckling you. If they don't like what you're doing. Um, you know, like it, it's just incredibly easy to read it on a kid. And the more you like 
get practice reading that on a kid, the more you get, um, I, I guess like the more skilled you become doing it with adults yeah. and like reading like, Oh, it's basically the same stuff. You're still watching for the same like facial tics and verbal cues from adult audience members. It's just that they're more subtle about it. So you have to be a little more specific in like what you're looking for. Yeah. Have you ever read, um, the empty space by Peter Brook? Yeah. Uh, he talks in that about, uh, when he's like just about ready to open up a production, he'll take it to a school and sneak it in and not tell the kids what they're about Mm -hmm. to see as like the final test to see if it works. It's such a great idea. It really, I think it is. It's a real, it's a way to like really, um, if you were like making a sword or something, you like forge it in flames. It's just like the way to, I think like if you were ever in doubt of like, ah, is this funny? Is this not funny? Like, should I try that? Like try it out in front of kids. Yeah. And make sure it's appropriate to like, don't be a monster. But like, if it is, you know, if it's appropriate, like try it out in front of kids, see if they, if they like it. And if they do, like, I think you've got a pretty solid, yeah. you've, you got something there. Yeah. Well, it also lets you know if you're being clear and if what you're doing mm-hmm. makes sense or if it, it, you know, just like lives in your head. Oh yeah. That's a huge part. It's like clarity and like being coy. Yeah. So anytime I like coach anyone, it's like, I feel like I give this note all the time of like, that was so clever and like so smart what you were doing there. But it was a little, it was like a little coy. It like wasn't totally clear. Yeah what was going on. Yeah. I think especially in improv that works well because, um, or being coy doesn't work well because, uh, like what we're doing on stage is like lying. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we're just inventing something on its feet. So we always have to assume that whatever the character is saying is the truth. Yeah. Unless we have a reason not to assume that. So like whenever people are like being coy or like sort of hiding their motivations or like not being totally clear about what they want, it creates this like really muddy situation on stage. And it's my feeling of watching a thousand shows. Yeah, you you pick up on on uh, like the intention to be subtle or the intention to be complex, mm-hmm. but it doesn't translate into the performance. It it and it, people become kind of like bored and detached by it, or just confused. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's it, that thing with like the polite audience is that people will um, appreciate you through that confusion, and that to me is the worst. The worst. Yeah. Uh, the worst fake compliment I ever got after a show. This woman came up to me and said, that was very nice. I was like, oh, oh my God. God. Nothing could hurt more than hearing that that was very nice. I would much rather hear, like, that sucked. Like, you were the worst performer I've ever seen. Me too. It's like, oh, I made a big impression on you. Yeah, me too. One way or the other, a strong feeling, something that, like, mattered to you. But, like, nice it doesn't mean anything. Nice is not, oh, it's terrible. Nice is a, is a short story in The New Yorker. You know what <laughs> oh, I mean? God, yeah. How, uh, um, Having like kids heckle you, oh, this is uh, um, like one big distinction between the stand up world and the improv world is like stand up comedians have to develop thicker skin. I think mm-hmm. improv, improv uh, uh, actors can be a little bit spoiled because we're so used to like gracious audiences. Oh, that yeah, give we're us babies. Time and support. Yeah. We're babies. And so, like, when you are heckled occasionally, some people just like collapse and don't know how to mm-hmm. deal with it. It, it. Being heckled by kids, does that sort of give you a little bit of like a looser perspective when adults aren't into your performance? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, a kid will, a kid will do two things. Like, w- when they heckle, they will say, the meanest thing in the world about like they'll which will be like about you personally about, yeah right? like not just about like your performance but like you as a, a soul up there on stage <laughs> like they'll nail what's wrong with you yeah and you feel like you want to crumble i mean but the the nice padding about like when kids heckle you is like you can remember for saying like i'm an adult they're a kid i'm an adult i am i can come back to this you yeah. know like i can i can bounce back from that a little, um, you know, like I have like all of the, my 26 years of experience of like verbal dexterity. Like I can use that to like come back in some way or like 
spin it around and like spin what they said as a compliment. Um, Do you have any like witty go-to comebacks for kids when kids are booing you? Yeah, I was just trying to think about like what is something what is something I go to? Oh, um, this this wasn't me, but this was a really good one. We were just doing I was just doing a show with Story Pirates. It was a bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And one of the kids I forget what Oh, he like started a chant going that was like it was fine. It was funny. He like started a chant, but it was completely against the wishes of the people on stage. Uh-huh. And, like, we didn't want a chant to be going. So he like started a chant. It's, it got going and then it died down. And then the kids shouted, which I was like, found pretty charming, but he shouted like, I started something, <laughs> which was like pretty cool. And, um, uh, my girlfriend was directing the show and she, her response to it was, um, like, that's right. You're going to start many things in life. The important thing is to know when to stop things. <laughs> and I like, got a big response. And it like, that was like a nice one. Cause I got a big response too. Yeah. But it, like, didn't shut that kid down. It did like agree that like, yeah, you're right. You did start something. And we noticed it. Yeah. That's, I always try to like hit that mark when I'm like dealing with a kid who's heckling is like, Hey, you got the attention that you wanted. Like how nice for you that you got that attention. I don't, I actually don't want to like ruin that experience for you. Cause yeah. that's like a fun thing. I was that kind of kid. I would yell at people when I was a kid. Like that's, I get where that's coming from. And it's like how it's not a, um, it's not like coming from a nefarious place or right. anything. So you just, you like, you want to highlight that of like, you got the attention you wanted. Didn't that feel good? Now I would like to get that back. Or mm-hmm. like, now I think the people in the audience would appreciate if I had, if I had the attention. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like, we're we're up here to do a show. That was very funny what you said, but, like, there's a whole show that's going to continue. You'll have more chances to heckle us if you stop right now. Yeah. And do, it, I guess, like, doing that, too, in a way where you're not, like, kind of humiliating the kid. Yeah. Also kind of, like, protects the heckling and can kind of, like, make it a serviceable part of the show. Like, if it becomes almost like a call and response later on that, like, you get the kid to kind of uh, um, not do it to be disruptive mm-hmm. and restless, but, like, it becomes a little bit of, like, a game that they can play, too. You can almost, like, oh, control yeah. the timing of it. It's, I mean, when that happens, it's incredible. And then yeah. it's, like, that's, like, why you keep coming back and doing shows with them. Yeah. Um, is because of experiences like that. Yeah, what you want to do is, like, you don't want to let the kid be crushed. You don't want to humiliate the kid. You want to be like, hey, you won this exchange that we had. But I also want to, like, earn my space on stage right now. It's like um, I was reading something by uh, – I was reading a bunch of, like, Lester Bangs, and he was writing about the Stooges. Mm-hmm. And he was writing about how, like, Iggy Pop was the only – at least before Lester Bangs died, he was, like, he was the only rock star who earned his time on stage. He, You know what I mean? He, like, could he could fight anyone in the audience for attention and win. Mm-hmm. Where, like, most other rock stars, it, like, they sort of um, operated on the basis of, like – this is a rock show. You will be quiet while I'm singing. Mm-hmm. And Iggy Pop didn't really do that where his was like, if you want to shout and you want to like make a ruckus while I'm performing, you have the right to, unless I can like win the audience back. And he would just win them back every time. Yeah. So it's a little, I mean, I don't know. That's, I always, I like read that and thought like, Oh, story pirates, of course, like yeah. with kids. Yeah. Where like kids will, kids just like don't, you know, they don't know how to go to theater yet, which is a blessing when you're doing that. Um, I forget where I was going with this, but that's, yeah, the anecdote I, it reminded me of. Well, it, it, it's interesting too because, like, I, I do want to talk about the connection between rock and um, comedy, mm-hmm. uh, like live comedy in particular, because I know that that's a, you're really articulate about that. So, what to you is the connection? What, uh, uh, like, how do you see the similarities between improvising or performing comedy and uh, um, and rock and roll? Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge. Um, I'm glad that came up. It's a it, it's like a huge thing. It's, it's been ever since I was a teen. I think there's like 
probably a lot of comedians who feel this way. It was like ever since I was a teenager, it was like, oh, I want to be a rock musician. And then like quickly, I mean, this is such a like a rote story of like, oh, I want to be a rock musician. Oh, I don't have the capacity to be a rock musician. Comedy it is then, mm-hmm. you know, like that, which was my first love anyway. It was like, all right, just I'll jump back into that with the same energy of it. I think it's, I don't know. It's a really, I could spend like nine podcasts like unloading this. So I'll, I'll try, but I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to, to really nail yeah. the, the connection between the two. I know that um, one thing that was huge was I read the, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life. No. That I might've brought this up before. It's the Michael Azarod. It's incredible. It's about each chapter is a different band from the eighties. It's the, a different underground band from the eighties. And it like sort of, it's like starts with back black flag and they're sort of like, I mean, they're not a heroic band, but they're sort of like the heroes of the book where like everything is sort of through the lens of like, how did these other bands relate to black flag? And they go through like minor threat and Fugazi and who's could do and all, bands like that. But the, the thing that's like really interesting about it is you, and that I found like so many parallels between like, that world and the current comedy world, at least the one that like I live in is they had, they were like making incredible work that like they were all really proud of, but like people weren't necessarily paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. And it's all, it's like specifically that book too is like specifically structured to exist from like 1981 to 1991, which is when Nevermind came out. So it's like all about like this, this world that was like about to, become mainstream but wasn't yet like nobody knew what was really going on in that world or like save for like a few people who show up a lot in this book and i guess um the connection i find to that with comedy and improv is this like will uh for example i'm on the sketch team the junk brothers Mm -hmm. and we we just had this conversation recently where we just did a show at a variety show and the host for that show introed us and was like everywhere this i this will sound immodest but it just like needs to for the story to work Um, the host was like, everywhere I go, I hear about like the junk brothers, like UCB magnet. Everyone's talking about the junk brothers. And like, it was very nice of him to say, it was really sweet. And we, you know, we did our show. And then afterwards we were talking and we're like, who is everybody? Like, what is, how, who is, how is everyone talking about it? There've been, we've only done so many shows and we've never had a full house. Mm -hmm. Like what, what, what is this guy talking about? And it's, I think the connection I am finding uh, between that is like, maybe not, everyone was there, but there were like four people at that show who were vocal about it. And then there were four more people at the other show who were vocal about seeing us. So it's a, just like a small community of people who care about something mm-hmm. and care enough to talk about it and keep going back to things and making, I don't know. It's a, it's a matter of like making something, making something important by caring about it. Yeah. Yeah. There, it, um, it, I've been reading, uh, uh, James Wolcott's essays recently about mm-hmm. the early days of CBGBs. Yeah. Have you read them? No, I haven't. There's a great book called, um, uh, oh geez, now I'm forgetting the book. My mind is oh, slipping man. this morning. Lewis. And I don't know. I don't know. What's uh, um, he wrote uh, uh, like a memoir of like living in New York in the seventies. And mm-hmm. there's like a good chunk of the book is devoted to CBGBs. And, you know, he talks in that about like the thing that was kind of so exciting was that you went to it, not with the expectation that you're seeing polished performers presenting what they do to you, but you're watching people kind of in the process of like figuring it out yeah, and working it out in front of you. And so it wasn't so much that it was lower expectations or more of a sense of forgiveness of what they're doing, but more of a sense of participating in the moment of creation and participating in the moment of like watching this identity kind of come out, watching these people figure out the inner workings of their own sensibility. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's process as product. Yeah. Is I think about that all the time whenever I watch an improv show is like, Oh, this is, 
incredible. That never would have worked as a sketch. That never would have worked as a bit in stand-up because the only thing that was exciting about I don't mean to like diminish it, but like the thing that was exciting about it was I was watching its lifespan on stage. Like I watched it be born. I watched it grow up and I watched it die all in two minutes. Totally. Yeah. It, well, it, I feel like as improvisers, we can spend a lot of time, especially like you get hooked into a cycle of, of doing a lot of classes mm-hmm. or, or learning a lot of different approaches and techniques. And you, you can end up trying to kind of like imitate this other product. You can yeah. end up trying to improvise perfectly and execute something that has like the structural integrity of like a movie or a play or something, which is like, I'm not knocking that at oh, yeah. all, you know, but sometimes like there is something about like the rawness and the immediacy of of just this like direct experience you i mean we were kind of talking about this when we were talking about sebastian canelli yeah before the podcast it's you kind of confronting this room of people and like all together this like confrontation of energies becomes the experience itself yeah absolutely yeah that's a um i guess that's another like the like rock music connection of it like what is what is like the experience of going to see a band in concert what is like what is that and it's a it's a confrontation between like the energy of the band and the energy of the audience mm-hmm coming together and like sometimes it's disastrous and sometimes it's incredible yeah sometimes but it's always like it's never it's never going to be perfect that's always a like whenever i see people performing and it's like and you can tell that the expectation is to like do a perfect show i always tune out a little yeah i I never mean to but i do it's it's just like hard not to it's not hard not to tune out when people are like aiming for perfection yeah it's just like that or, I mean, there's just such a, like, in 2015, like, right now when we're talking, like, I always hear the word flawless mm-hmm. being, I just feel like that's, like, that word's having a renaissance right now of, like, being used as a compliment to describe something. And it really, like, gets under my skin. I, it's, like, vacuum sealed. Yeah, I hate, I it's just me, like, flawless to me just means, like, not alive. Yeah. Like, a diamond is flawless. Like, yeah. I don't care about a diamond. Yeah. I prefer, as pretentious as it is, I prefer graceful to flawless. I like yeah. something that has a sense of kind of, like, easiness to it you know it flows well but i totally agree with that it it, and it goes into like it's almost like the difference between listening to like heavily produced stuff on an album versus like the live experience of seeing a concert is like you can kind of like want to imitate the sort of like perfection of it all having been worked out and Mm -hmm. getting like you know an amalgamation of 30 different takes and you know like um perfect production capabilities yeah but like what it lacks is like exactly those flaws and those like rough edges that make it feel alive yeah that, so like my friend um my friend Addie in high school went to go see uh the pixies live mm-hmm. and like reported i mean i've never seen them but she said that they're just like live they sound exactly the same way they do yeah recorded and i was like oh how was that i was in high school i was like very impressed by the idea of them i was like how was that how was that concert and her answer was expensive yeah yeah because that's like why why bother going if right. it's just going to be exactly the same. Well, you're paying for the right to say that you saw them live. Yeah, which is not I just I don't think is an interesting. Yeah, it it, it I saw um, guided by voices last summer. Oh yeah, um, have you ever seen them live? No, I wish they sound a lot like they do on their albums, mm-hmm. but their albums are pretty raw sounding. Oh, absolutely, too. yeah. The they thing, sound drunk, yeah. They sound drunk. They are drunk. They're drinking like it monsters is correct, on that stage. Yeah. It's insane. But like they keep on going. I left 
after like I don't know the 16th encore or something. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Well, I mean, their songs are like a minute long too, yeah. so they can do that. But it like they just like wouldn't stop, and that was yeah. actually a thing. Like when I finally got like carried away by the concert, it was that thing of like Jesus, these guys. It's just like raw aggressive energy. Oh yeah, that, Matt like, B. Weir saw coming. them and was telling me a story about them where he like Bob Pollard came out and shotgun two beers before performing yeah. anything like no a note of music had not occurred shotgun two beers and shouted you think i'm an animal and then they started playing i was like oh my god i've got to i've got to see them yeah yeah hey, they put on a hell of a good show i'll tell you what oh yeah i bet yeah it's really exciting so being who were like this is a weird question sure you don't even have to answer this question if you don't want to. i bet i will though who are the people that you kind of like think of who are the sort of like heroes that are in the back of your mind that like as a performer or as a coach or or just as somebody in the arts that mm-hmm. you kind of like are using as your yardstick oh great question yeah no um god i think all the time i mean like a huge influence on me i think we've talked about this before is um uh best show with Sharpling and Worcester. Mm-hmm. It's or it's it's Tom Sharpling hosts it, but the all of my favorite stuff on it are when John Worcester, who's the drummer for Super Chunk of the Mountain Goats and uh, other bands, I forget. But he um he like calls in to Tom Sharpling's radio show as these different characters. I just think if anyone's who's listening to this is like, oh, I should listen to that. I'm sure you've heard of it before, but like I'm sure sh- if you've talked to me in person, I'm sure I've like proselytized about it, but like I love that. That's probably maybe my number one thing that I, I look up to. And I, I think something that like really appeals to me about that is that they're not, neither of those guys are comedians mm-hmm. is like this weird, like badge of pride that I would wear if I were them, I guess that they, they do this incredibly funny thing that is so funny on their terms. And it doesn't follow any of like the rules of game mm-hmm. that like, I just did air quotes as I said that for anyone listening, like you could hear it in the inflection of your yeah, voice. I bet you could. Yeah. yeah. They don't, but like they don't follow any of like the rules of comedy right. that exist, yeah. but it's still funny, which I think is like a really liberating, I guess anyone who like, if there are like a pre-existing, uh, oh, sorry, existing set of rules that, um, that are in place, anyone who like breaks that, those successfully, I'm like always really fascinated and inspired by, I always think of that scene and, have you ever seen, I'm sure like everyone's read it, but have you seen the movie Naked Lunch? No. There's, it's, inc- I like it a lot. It's Cronenberg directed it, which yeah. is interesting, but they, um, there's a scene where, uh, what, what are their names? Uh, uh, Ginsburg and Kerouac are like sitting around at a diner talking and like Kerouac is like, they're having a debate about like how you should write. And they've sort of presented it as like, there's two different ways that you should write. Kerouac is on one side and his, what he's saying is like, you should never edit. You should just let the voice spill out and you should just be natural. And Ginsburg is saying like, you should edit everything only through editing. Will you find your real voice? Like that's, they're sort of presenting it. Like there's two different arguments or there's like, there's one argument and it has two sides to it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, William S. Burroughs sits down between them. And they're like, Oh, you'll, you'll be the, th- you'll be the tiebreaker. Like who do you, wh- which side do you think is right? And he hears them both out. And his answer is exterminate all rational thought, mm-hmm. which is, incredible it just like breaks their argument completely open he's like no 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 there's it's not a it's not an argument between two things there's like a third way that exists that is like stronger than any, anything that either of you guys are saying yeah um i sort of got off track with the answer there i think another one actually bob pollard of guided by voices is a big he's really inspiring to me the way that he approaches i was just reading one of the 33 and the thirds mm-hmm. about um oh yeah it's about b thousand which is their is it's the, it's, you, it's their album yeah if you that's the can album. only listen to one yeah then you're like a prisoner or something. But if choose that one, <laughs> they, uh, 
<laughs> you can listen to more. Listen to more albums. Don't listen to just one, but start there. He, um, they interview him a lot in that, and like his process on songwriting is really his processes when uh, for approaching songwriting. I think are really interesting and really sort of inspiring to at least how I like to approach comedy where he's like, there's a thousand different ways to write a song. You know, like I don't, I never follow the same formula once. Like I'll do the, um, actually speaking of Burroughs, he'll like use like the cut up method where Mm -hmm. he'll write like six different songs and take like 10 seconds of one and put it with another one and like see what fits. I think that's an interesting way to, I've certainly found inspiration in that with comedy, especially like when you, have like a bunch of different, I've had like a bunch of different incredible teachers. I've been taught by a number of, I feel like Peter McNerney, Zach Woods, you've coached me. You've been incredible. Like the, um, Shannon O'Neill, like these incredible teachers that I've like learned so much from, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times their philosophies sort of don't jive with each other. They don't like really lock in perfectly, which is the first like year or two that I was doing improv was really frustrating. And then eventually I realized it was like, Oh no, it's better this way it's better that there's not one single guiding philosophy to improv. So you can approach it however you want. Yeah. I mean like show to show you'll like, I'll patchwork it. Or like, all right, I'm going to do more of a Peter show today. I'm going to try more of the, like of the philosophies that I've learned from Peter or like, I'm going to have more of a Lee Overtree show today where like, I'll do some of the stuff that I learned in story pirates and see how this affects this show. Mm-hmm. And there's like, no, the way I think of it almost is like, if you I think of comedy as like a, like a car, or like you were, you're driving it, but there's no single setting that's optimal for a car. Like as you move forward with the car, like the same radio station isn't going to work in right. every part of the country. You just got to change it up. You got to get tune ups for the car. Like, you, you know what I mean? You're never going to tune your car up so that it'll just run perfectly for 20 years. You always have to make little adjustments to it. Right. That's how, does that make any sense what I'm saying? Yeah, it makes oh, perfect cool. sense. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I mean, I agree with you too. It, because it, it, because it's alive and because it's so meaningful to you, it would be like reductionist if there was like, okay, here's the one correct point of view. Yeah. Here's the way to do it. Here's the step-by-step. Because then it takes away all the life out of it. Then it just becomes about going through the correct motions in order to churn out the correct product. And it becomes completely inanimate. It, it's yeah. just like running a computer program. I like, and I know, you know, it, it. a lot of people can get really frustrated by this. I like wrestling with it. I like that like mm-hmm. nobody has the answer. Um, people are able to kind of share their different sensibilities about it. But it, it also goes like, to me, to kind of like backtrack for a second. Sure, sure. Back to what you're saying about like watching people kind of like break the rules and having that be like kind of so exciting. For me, it, it kind of like takes me back to like when you're in like junior high school or high school mm-hmm. and you're kind of like young and dumb enough, uh, you know, at that point where you just kind of like have like impulses and shit. And, oh yeah. And, and school provides just the right straight man for your sensibilities mm-hmm. that like, at least for me at that stage of my life, I wasn't thinking about comedy and, and I certainly wasn't thinking about like making a career in comedy or what have you. Mm-hmm. You just are bored by the man yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and the man is just this big abstraction, but it's just this sort of like gigantic bureaucracy that you know is kind of like keeping your ass in a seat. And it's so frustratingly like doesn't have a face either. Like I was just like always confronted with like teachers who cared. Yeah. And like, you know, like I know these, good people. Yeah. Good people. But they're still the man. They're still the man. And it, it's not like any one person in that situation. It's just this kind of like, it's this abstraction and it's this idea of like, kind of conforming to like correct behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea of putting yourself through the system so that you become uh, um, 
the right fit for like oh yeah for what has to be done later on i mean i remember in high school like lamenting the fact that we didn't have we had a few but like none that ever interacted with me we didn't have any like hothead bullies yeah because i remember i'd like watched enough media at that point to know like oh i know what i'm like and i would really do well with some hothead bullies like right. i would really handle them what like they'd be good foils to me yeah we just didn't have any yeah it was so frustrating yeah i people were very nice in my high school yeah i had a really good time yeah which sucks it, it, it's interesting it, like it's not at all like the movies you know what i mean like oh you, yeah but what's fun is like so you have like all this like pent-up energy and stuff like that and then you start like you dick around you fuck mm-hmm. around you pull these like weird pranks that you don't tell anybody about just for your own amusement oh yeah you get into drawing not because you love art but because it's a way to kind of let out some of this like anarchy you just mm-hmm. start like looking in meaningless ways to cause trouble for no other reason than because the trouble is more interesting and it feels a little bit more electric to you than like the boredom of of like doing things the correct way oh yeah i mean actually to to jump back to like inspire this is such a like a cliche and thing for a comedian to be inspired by yeah. but like the marx brothers were a big right inspiration to me specifically because of this one scene in monkey business yeah there, which is the one where they're on the boat. Um, I also really like that each Marx Brothers movie has the plot can be summed up in one word. The one like, they're on the boat. Yeah, there's the one like they're boat, in the mansion. Uh, Duck soup. The plot is nation. Right. Like, yeah. The um, but the there's a scene in Monkey Business where they're like running from like the cops or security on the boat, and they for no reason other than it would be the funniest thing to do. They like run by a band. And they're like, oh, you know, it was like, oh, we're going to dress up like the band and play their. So they like push the band out of the way and play their instruments, but they don't know how to play the instruments. So they're terrible and they give themselves away immediately. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't do it like they didn't do it to escape. They did it because that would be the funniest thing to do in that moment. Yeah, it, it um, there's I think it's in Duck Soup. They come like into the office of their boss, the, the guy who's like hired them to spy on. on oh, yeah. Uh, on Groucho. And the first thing Harper Marx does is he walks up to the boss and just cuts off his tie with a pair of scissors. Oh, yeah, right away. They just walk into rooms and like just begin like damaging things for no purpose, yeah. for no reason. My favorite line in, um, I quote this in class all the time when I'm teaching group games, is like I give a homework assignment to every, like every week I'll make people watch a different sketch as a homework assignment so we can think oh, about it great. for group games. Um, and the... Uh, Again, it's like a super cliched example, you know, but like the stateroom scene in Night at the Opera. Oh, yeah. Um, which is like still holds up. It's just a super, super funny scene. But my favorite line in the scene, for anybody who doesn't know it, you got to you gotta watch it. You could YouTube it. Stateroom scene, Night at the Opera. Uh, um, the Marx Brothers are, are staying in a very, very tiny mm-hmm. room aboard this boat. And people keep on knocking on the door to like... You know, like the plumber comes in to fix a pipe and mm-hmm. then like room service comes in with a bunch of food and shit like and it just gets like more and more packed. At one point, this woman knocks on the door and says, did you call for a manicure? And Groucho says, no, come on in. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's just this thing of like needlessly just like getting into trouble for no reason. It's really interesting because the I, I feel like and I think it is like worth examining comedy like this where they philosophically come from comedy at a really interesting from a really interesting angle where like mm-hmm. if you watch like if you want to watch like old classic comedians like buster keaton or charlie chaplin or even like a little less so but like i think he's still sort of in that world like wc fields mm-hmm. like they're humanist mm-hmm. they're like they come at it for or harold lloyd definitely is like coming at it from like a humanist uh perspective but the marx brothers are totally different where it's they come at it from the perspective of like true anarchy yeah which makes the i think that's why they at least for me they hold up like way more than those other things do yeah yeah, 
I, I think that's true. And, and it sort of like taps into, I feel like in every podcast I have like, I get really pretentious at one point. So here it goes. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, like there's something about it where like, there's just this spirit to it that like resists this reductionism mm-hmm. where you have to live your life for like practical reasons where like the, the, the purpose of your life is to like, succeed to the next level and like win those profits and like every single yeah. step be, makes perfect sense and is perfectly rational you know what I mean? but it like lacks this kind of like juice it lacks this like spirit of like electricity you yeah know what i mean or like well, anarchy just, something absolutely. about like your like inner spirit it's or the something. most important thing it i is. was just reading this um well just, it was like months ago when i was babysitting these kids they had this book about norse mythology yeah and the intro for it was just about loki they were just talking about Loki in it, and they were like, "This guy is a jerk." Yeah, he, he is. He like kills everyone. He like brings about doomsday, and they're like, "They're like, but the the whole thing about Norse mythology, like, why do we still talk about Norse mythology?" And it's Loki. Yeah, the reason we talk about it is because of this guy who like every move that he makes, and you, as you like read the stories, every move that he makes is not towards success; yeah. it's towards ruining everything. Yeah, and it they um, this is gonna kill me. I forget who wrote it, but it's like. An author you would recognize. Um, I want to say it's Michael Chabon. I don't know though. I I don't know. Um, but somebody there. <laughs> who knows? It does. It, look it up. It doesn't matter. They um, what they say and like how they describe him is like he ruins the world and he also makes the world worth living in. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think is a really like that's something to shoot for. Yeah, it it, it is interesting and and like mm, it goes back to this. Okay, this is another really stupid thing, but like, oh yeah, I think a lot about like, uh, um, like spirit and form. Mm-hmm. You think of like Catholic ritual, right? Oh, like, oh and, yeah, it's like just like the most formalized expression of like religious duty and service. Um, and if you like, you actually go to a mass. Not that like I'm spending a lot of time going to masses, I presume, but mm-hmm. like if you go to one that like actually moves you and like lifts your spirits, it, the form itself isn't so much about like executing proper ritual. It leads you to this like invisible thing in the center, which is this spirit. It's like Mm -hmm. this insight into yourself. Like the form becomes the outer kind of cloaking for this spirit. When you're at a service or, you know, or whatever, where like that spirit isn't there, it then just becomes this like ponderous, meaningless ritual. Oh, that, yeah. You know, Especially when you're a kid. Oh, for going sure. To that and it's we're, just like, when are we? Yeah. And, and actually, like, I, I remember as a kid going to going to synagogue and going to mm-hmm. Catholic church. I was not raised religiously, but when I would visit like family, depending oh, on sure. which side of the family I was visiting, you'd go to one or the other. And like, I remember the thing that most impressed me in church was just the giant crucifix. I don't remember what they were saying. Oh, yeah. But it made like an artistic impression on you. You're like moved and haunted by this gigantic life-size crucifix. And years later, I went back and and they had like reformed this particular Mm -hmm. church and like cleaned it out and it was all gone. And it's like, this sucks. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was raised, uh, I was raised Episcopalian, which is the real like shorts wearing version of Christianity. Yeah. And they, um, my parents will listen to this. Like I had a good time with it, but they, um, I remember I went to go to Catholic mass with my friend one time and they like, it was like, that is an entirely different. It felt like a different religion. Like yeah. every, there is like this huge, like 
I, like, I don't mean to like be crass about this. So I don't know who's what the beliefs of anyone listening to this are, but there's like a huge bloody person like up for sure for everyone to see, and it's just this, very like, dramatic. We are not fucking around, yeah, like for sure. And I, 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 mean, I imagine in the days before movies, and in the days where like it was hard to see theater, that was your theater. You went to church. Oh, and you absolutely. Have this, yeah. like, but it, it. Sorry, please. Oh no, 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 I was just gonna say I've actually been reading this. Um, this like ties some stuff together really interestingly. I've been reading this book about. Um, the occult and rock music and yeah. like how the relationship between those two things. And yeah. they talk a lot in there about, um, actually I think I have it with me so I can say the name of the author. If anyone wants to look it up, um, I'll get it out while I say this though. They, um, he, or he says a lot in this book about like the thing that sort of draws people both to rock music and the occult is that that spiritual connection that you were talking about that like occurs in church that like is not always guaranteed. It's not always guaranteed when you go to church and it's like, it's controlled by, powers that are sort of outside of your control. It's sort of like outside of your control. The man. The man. It's the man. And that like the occult and rock music are both two forces and like why they've been protested so hard by like th- uh, forces like the church is because they put it into the listener's control. Right. Or the or I mean, the individual's control. Right. They make it like the occult is like if you want to use a Ouija board and have a spiritual experience, like you don't have to pay anyone. Mm-hmm. You don't have to meet up with other people. You don't have to dress nice. Like you can do that in your basement or attic you wouldn't do it on the ground floor but like you could do that i have the book out it's uh season of the witch by peter biebergall awesome real good nice um i'm almost done with it it's great um yeah but that's the the, i think that's like the uh, an interesting thing about all of those is that like that spirit and i think that's like i do think it's true in comedy of like not to be too highfalutin about it like you know sometimes you're just going to see a show and like it's funny and that it ends there but like more often than I would have expected when I got into this, like I'll go see a show and be like spiritually moved right. by what yeah. I saw. That sounds like an over exaggeration, but I know what you mean by yeah, it. Yeah, right. It, it, it's almost like saying that like spiritually moved seems like it's like too big of a word, but it's not yeah. exactly. Because like uh, um, going back to like the religious thing for a second, you know, like it when it doesn't work, it just is this amalgam. It's this accumulation of beliefs and it's sort of like this indoctrination into a belief system that you have to like plug into. But when it works, it like transcends that belief system and it, it, it calls attention to something that there aren't exactly words for. It's just this feeling of very profoundly being alive. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like the purpose of like those like outer religious forms is to call attention to that spirit where you feel alive. And to me, it's like, well, that goes back to like dicking around in your notebook and causing needless trouble when mm-hmm. you're in junior high school. You feel alive, you know? And it, this is where it connects really interestingly in my mind to comedy and to improv specifically mm-hmm. because like improv when it's really good taps into that current where it's like, come on, baby, we don't have time. We're moving. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I always tell people when I'm coaching too is like you got 20 minutes maybe 40 minutes if you're doing like a, a longer show, like never more than that. Yeah. Like that's how long you have with these characters. That's how long you have with this world that you've created. So like burn it up, like yeah. burn, like set that world on fire. Cause it's not, it's already dead in a few minutes anyway. Like you don't have long with this, like explore every nook and cranny. You can get so hung up on doing it correctly mm-hmm. that it becomes like the outer ritual of like the Catholic church. It's like oh, you're yeah. doing the motions, but they don't add up to They don't mean we've anything. Seen, we've seen shows like that. Constantly. That's like not, it's not exciting to watch at all. And it's not exciting to do. And you feel shitty about yourself when oh, you're doing yeah. it too. And you don't know why. And I would argue that the reason why is because there's no uh, anarchy to it. There's yeah. no sense of like, I'm in trouble in the best way possible. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I always run this exercise. It's like my, one of my favorite improv exercises of like, 
uh, well, okay, like let's start a two-person scene. A third person's going to come in at a certain point, ruin the scene, ruin it, just ruin it in some capacity, ruin their scene. And like, I have never seen anyone fuck up that exercise. Yeah. You just can't, you can't ruin it. It's like, it, it's invincible and it only becomes stronger when you're trying to ruin it. Yeah. If you like approach it with that spirit, that spirit of anarchy or that sense of like, let's see what I can do here. What you're actually doing is you're like tapping into the part of you that you're most excited about or like, oh, I thought I was going to be sitting on this all day. Like I get to let it out right now. Yeah. And then the scenes become so exciting. I did this, um, I was doing a, a rehearsal with Metal Boy and like, <clears throat> oh my God, this was great. I'm like, sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Sam Rogal like crawled out of a television and just said time to die <laughs> in the middle. Of, like it wasn't clear if they were watching something. He just crawled out of a television said time to die, grabbed both of their hearts out of their chest, watched as they were like beating and then ate them. Yeah. One of the best scenes I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It, it, are you a fan of the young ones? Do you like oh, the yeah. young ones? I, um, the thing like when I was a kid and I first saw the young ones that just blew me away was the complete like lawlessness of it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that in the middle of a scene for no reason, without resolving the scene, one of them could turn to the camera and say, ladies and gentlemen, Dexy's Midnight Runners. And then Dexy's yeah. Midnight Runners are playing for the next like six minutes. And you're like, what the fuck is this? It's a really, I remember watching, um, this was one of my favorite shows of all time when I was, I still love it. It was a uh, mystery science theater yeah. when I was a kid. And I remember in the theme song too, I feel like feeling really liberated by the theme song where they, totally. yeah, man. that part where they say like, if you're wondering how they're alive in this, uh, in this space station, like chill out. Yeah. It's just a show. Yeah. I like, I love that. I love that, that tone of like, Oh no, anything can happen at any given moment. This is, we can mess it up. We will mess it up. Yeah. I, again, sorry, this is like so pretentious. I apologize. But like it, it, to me is like, you know, your brain just like calcifies over time. The yeah. more and more you know shit, the more expert you become at like living and, and kind of like understanding the rules to life or mm-hmm. whatever, the more calcified your brain becomes and it just becomes this gradual shutting out of experience. And then eventually you just put up this kind of like hard callus between you and having to be open to experience. And you lose a little bit that sense of kind of like electricity, that sense of like yeah. anarchy that you felt when you were a kid and you start to die. Yeah. I love just like that kind of like madness that we're talking about, that sense that anything can happen. It brings you back to like how exciting it was to watch cartoons when you were a little kid and were mm-hmm. just amazed at at just like the movement of things. Oh, well, I remember a as great... a kid just being amazed by things moving that shouldn't be moving and it like blowing me away. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a bit I remember that in uh in uh, Looney Tunes which are like have absolutely the spirit especially like the Tex Avery Bob Clampett like side of looney tunes i don't like frizz freeling very much but yeah, like yeah. okay um actually i mean that's a great example though like those are you know like different directors in looney tunes and like there's some of them like bob clampett or tex avery um they will like their characters will they'll just turn and like talk to the audience or something or they will just break the laws of reality entirely because yeah. like that's the funniest thing to do in that moment and the ones that weren't as exciting to me as a kid or were just sort of like oh a cartoon's on i'm right. just i'm just passively watching now or the ones where it's just like oh Oh, a hunter is chasing after Bugs Bunny. Oh, I see. Like, mm. oh, I, he's winning. Good, good. Like, right. that's the. It's just the formula. Yeah. It the it the ones that just kind of like tell a simple story. Mm-hmm. You can kind of tend to lose interest in, but the ones where the story is there just enough to involve you in this world, so that the world can be burned up, like you're talking about, yeah, and absolutely. like madness can happen. That's like where it becomes real inspiring. That's sort of the not to be this 
the, this guy talking about, but like my director series that I'm doing is Please. like they the form for it and how it works is we have an interview with the audience member at the beginning. The name of this director series is This Is Your Life. Great. Playing every Thursday at nine o'clock at the Magnet Theater in January twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Please yeah. go on. Sorry. Don't, if you're listening to this years in the future, you missed it. Um, they. Uh, oh, what I'm saying is like there's a there's an interview at the beginning with the audience member, and then a run of scenes Mm -hmm. and ideally every member on the team will initiate one scene and like that's our show like that's there's like not a lot more form to it than that and what i've told them too is like make big choices like play really fast and loose with the reality of this person's life because we already got our human element at the beginning of the show like we already got that interview with them at the beginning of the show and there's sort of nothing that can replicate that audience interview because you're seeing a real person behaving in a real way on yeah. stage even if they're lying about everything they're saying like they're being real about the way that they're lying you know what i mean you just like you sort of can't fake being yourself even right. if you even if you're trying to fake being yourself you, there's still you that's bleeding through right um so what i told them is like let think of the think of their life story as a husk that can be burned away at a, at a moment's notice because like we already got we already know the story we know the story that this person's telling like we interviewed them about like a like lost love in their life or like a religious experience they had or like any experience that they like want to tell a story about like we already got the plot of that we don't need to see the plot again you can use the plot if it like brings you someplace else but let that let that be like the fourth thing that you concern yourself with Mm -hmm. like in uh the show that just happened on thursday like one of us they were in a starbucks and one of them to exit the starbucks just like dived off of a diving board it was related to nothing and had no basis in reality, but like it worked really well. It was fun. It was a big choice and everyone got on board with it right away of like, Oh, this is a weird Starbucks, which sound, I mean, like, I'm not doing this scene any service sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. like this, but like it was so exciting to watch because it was somebody fucking with the, it was somebody fucking with the form and somebody fucking with the show right away. Yeah. That I don't know. There's something electric about that. Yeah. It, it um, and it, it, I think like, just being able to kind of like break at those like tightly knit bonds of expectation yeah. makes you feel free. And that in that like feeling of freedom comes that feeling of like being young and being alive and being like open and connected to like the world of experience around Absolutely. you that you don't know that's bigger than you are. And that is full of surprises and mystery and, and, and it's scary, but like good in a good way, yeah. in a good way. Like Anytime I coach people too, I always feel like a bad, I really feel like a bad coach whenever I have to say this to people, but yeah. they'll be like, what do I do in this situation? Or like what, you know, if they have like a specific, mm-hmm. uh, question or like a philosophical question my response is always like i don't know Mm -hmm. i have no idea how to answer your question other than you just gotta do it do it and like figure it out for yourself and i always feel like that's like not a satisfying and i know it's not a satisfying answer for them to get but like it's the only honest one i can give but you know what though that's one of those questions that like the more you try to answer the question the hungrier that person becomes for answers yeah like i think of that as like that's the part of your brain the part okay so like Part of like the fun of growing up and becoming an adult is that the world does become less scary. You mm-hmm. do kind of get the ins and outs. You can navigate. You know what I mean? Like you can kind of like. Yeah. Uh, uh, like I'm not afraid of the dark anymore. Exactly. But the flip side to that is like the world actually is a scary place. You have mm-hmm. built up this sort of like defensive shield around yourself to like diminish the fear of it. But along with diminishing the fear of it is also like 
joys and pleasures that you're no longer experiencing. And part of it is just like that pleasure of like that anarchy that you're talking oh, about. Yeah. It's like very native to a kid's way of thinking, but starts to become foreign to a grown up. I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. And they say that in, I, I, I don't want to get too into this, but like it is, it's a thing in my life. They say that in sobriety of like the, the more that you shut yourself off from like the lows of yeah. life, the more that you're also shutting yourself off from the highs of life. Like right. You would just, you don't want to like flatline your experiences. You want to have like, you want to have awful experiences. You want to be traumatized as much as nobody wants to be traumatized. Like you do though, because uh, I always think of the, the, this is, I'll be pretentious here. The like Khalil Gibran quote about like the deeper that sorrow carves into our being, the more joy we can contain. Right. Like you want to carve pretty deep. Yeah. You want, you know, like you want to be able to contain joy. So you want to be, you want to be scared. You want to be aware of how awful the world can be. You do. And, and, and not to get, well, to get super pretentious myself, right? Like, is this the pretentious this episode? This is the pretentious yeah. episode. Uh, um, it's sort of like an artist's job. It, it, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently yeah. of like, we kind of live in a generation now where this idea of an artist having a function mm-hmm. uh, um, seems like really outdated and silly. It's just sort of like not part of like the conversation anymore, unless you can kind of use your art to productive ends and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, um, be popular with it. It's sort of like, that's stupid. Uh, um, but like, Historically, there was like the artist's job was to kind of like open up those vulnerable places that hurt Mm -hmm. and sort of like make that hurt kind of beautiful and make it something where like the artist was was there to kind of like pave the way for you to kind of ground yourself into these like real living experiences to not like replace real experience with just like knowledge and shit, but to like actually have you stay connected to those like deeper things to like pain and and joyfulness and happiness and all that kind of stuff. They're like living scouts. They like go out into the world and like, Oh, there's something awful over here. Like everyone experienced this awful thing with me. Right. Right. And I feel like the kind of, I mean, you can argue if you want, whether you want to call this art or not, but like live performance and specifically live comedy and, Mm -hmm. and, and like music, like really good, the stuff that's immediate and, and in the room and only belongs to these people. And you could never get it in a recording again. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not about the steps that were taken. It's not about the structure of it, but it's about that spirit that it unlocks. Like, I feel like that in a way is doing that in a way you're kind of giving this contact high to an audience mm-hmm. that's like opening them up to accept more experience to to be more comfortable by having a little bit of kind of insanity as part of their lives and a little bit of trouble as part of their lives even if it's just for half an hour after seeing a show and then they kind of go back to like what you do yeah i mean you want to function is i feel like that's like ideally the wouldn't that ideally be the role of the comedian to like function as this like almost I hate that I'm talking like this, but this like that like trickster figure in like right. mythology. No, that, yeah, like, I'm gonna show you something painful or exciting or something just so you like have that in your life now. I know that that's like why I've been reading up about this, especially because of reading season of the witch about yeah. like the speaking of like Christianity and religion of like that's that's what to me is like really interesting. I can't let this podcast go without talking a little about about a little bit about the devil. Um, the they, um, what's interesting most to me about like that figure, especially like the devil in Christianity and like why it's like spoken to me since I was a kid is it's, if you look at like how Christianity will like swallow up other religions, uh, just the same way that like the English language swallows up other languages. Right. Like it's what, you know, it, it's what helps propel them forward and become the cultural force that they are. But they, what's interesting about them is like a lot of like gods like Eshu or Loki or, uh, Pan or like Hermes, like these, like those all of like our modern perception of uh, 
of like of the devil are like just swallowed up versions of that. Yeah. They like if you like if you any like biblical text like about Satan, he's like pretty boring. He just like is like trying to like, oh, we should try to trick Job. Like mm-hmm. there's not a lot that he actually does. But the like all of the cultural uh, baggage that he he wears is just sort of like swallowed up from other cultures, which is, I don't know. I think that's a really, it really interests me. Yeah. Well, I think it's a way to like, you, you kind of like attach your like collective fears mm-hmm. and collective desires and collective embarrassments and all of these things that are part of like the side of yourself that you're like a little bit. You scapegoat. You scapegoat. Uh, uh, and then like comedy or music or like live performance or something that's a little bit like more of a raw experience provides a safe outlet for that to start like flowing again yeah absolutely. and not just be like pent up inside of you well that's like whenever you watch um i, I, I listened to the the nick podcast i know you, you guys talked about like face heel stuff in, mm-hmm. in wrestling Anytime you watch like a heel performer they're having the time if they're good they're having the time of their lives because it is there's something so fun about taking on all of that negative baggage and yeah. like positively propelling it forward yeah and like there's something, I mean, you know, when you like play a villain in a show or something like that's who on earth would want to play a hero in a show. Like when there's, when you have the option to play a villain, when you have the option to play a negative energy or negative emotion. Yeah. This is why I scream in every show that I'm in. I want to switch gears really quickly. Sure. Going back for a second, we we're talking about like how there's like no one technique for writing a song, mm-hmm. right? But like you kind of like do what it takes. So I want to talk about the Junk Brothers for a sec, your sketch group. Absolutely. Uh, um, how do you guys work? How do you guys write? Um, that, that's a fantastic question that I don't totally have the answer to because it, it is sort of like the, the Bob Pollard, like different things for different yeah. shows. Like we just had a variety show and we knew like, all right, this is a variety show. We're probably, because it's a variety show and like we know that playing scenically doesn't work as well Mm -hmm. in those spaces. Like we're going to play ourselves. We've never played ourselves in a show before. We're going to do that. What are the versions of ourselves? Like how would we heighten the, um, how would we heighten the three of us? Mm -hmm. Um, And as we, as we did that, that sort of like led to what we wrote for that. Sometimes it'll just be, um, I've been on other sketch teams and I'm like, I'll have written a sketch for them. And the, always the response, a very common response is like, Branson, that will never play on stage. Like mm-hmm. great sketch, but like, it's not going to work. Something that like really invigorates me about working with Tim Platt and Katie Skelton, who are like my best friends in the world is I can give them a sketch like that in the, always the way that it's oriented. And I do this with any sketch they get is the way it's oriented is how can we make this work? Mm-hmm. How can we, we agree that this is funny right now. How can we translate what's funny on the page to the stage? Right. Um, so it's sort of a like, it's sort of problem solve. I think it's like mostly we create problems for ourselves and then problem solve from there. That's interesting. Where we do, we did a show that was like um, our Spiders Alive show where we were like, let's do a show where the um, we're doing a live taping of a, a season four of a sitcom called Spiders Alive. And that's the sketch show that we're going to be doing. We're like, that's, that's the dumbest idea we've had but, but like dumb in sort of a like that's totally impractical like why would we do that and we just did it anyway we just like had to work extra hard to make that function as a sketch show or make that function as a show that was at least like worth the five dollars for coming to it yeah i it, one of my favorite things when i'm directing a show is to think about like what space we're in mm-hmm. like what theater specifically what it feels like and to think about like all right, like, is this a variety show? Is this, uh, uh, like, the broader context? Absolutely, yeah. Because you start to think in terms of, like, not what's going to be funny, but, like, what experience do I want people to be having from this? And you you think a little bit more, like, three-dimensionally rather than thinking about, like, the recipe of, like, how to structure a good show. Mm -hmm. You think a little bit more about, like, 
how to create an experience for people to have. Which, oh, sure. Again, it's like that intangible thing. You can't work it out on paper exactly. It's it's like what you bring to like this live moment right now, that engagement, oh, or that yeah. wrestling with an well, audience. I looked back at the, I just had to submit a writing packet for something and I like, I looked back at all of our Junk Brothers sketches and like the on paper, it looks terrible. Yeah. We look awful on paper. Like all the sketches are like Katie goes here at this point and like Tim says the satanic thing at this point. Like there's no... You know what I mean? It's just like figured out to the space. Like yeah. We did a show. If we're doing a show with the magnet, we're like, all right, we have a bunch of tech stuff we can do here. So we're going to do Katie's sketch about house music. Mm-hmm. But if we're doing a show at like much more in Brooklyn is like, oh, we have an iPod that goes into speakers that don't work very well. And when the lights black out, you can still see everything. So like, all right, we're probably going to do a little bit more of a talkier. Yeah. Just like, hey, we're ourselves in the space, like a bit that's like a, maybe a little bit closer to the reality of ourselves for a space like that. Yeah. Well, I love that thing of like use that. Yeah. In, instead of like pretending like the lights are going out and then like doing like a perfectly smooth sketch or something, it's like, oh, in this place, the lights don't go out away and the sound is shit. Use that. How do I use that yeah. to like. How can you make your weakness your strength? Yeah. How do I make that what the show is instead mm-hmm. of like trying to deny it and, and put up this like presentation of something? Yeah. How can we take like we're a three person team of people who like don't really, I, I mean, it's like we don't really know how to act outside of like the few characters that we play. And I don't mean that as like a slight to Tim or Katie or myself. It's just like, there's certain restrictions that we're, uh, that we exist inside of. And like within that, how can we, how can we have the best show possible? And usually by like, it like for me, at least it'll like inspire me. If if you have a limitation, it's like, all right, well now we're not working with infinity, which is like, that's the last thing I ever want to do is like work with limitless potential. Like, no, I want to work with some limits so that I, I know exactly what I can bounce up against. Yeah. Branson Race, you are the Iggy Pop of live comedy. <gasps> thank, thank you, Lewis. Thank you for talking. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, uh, and thank you guys for listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast. Uh, I've been talking today with Branson Reese. A couple of other big thanks to Grant Goldberg, our engineer, to Evan Barden, our producer. This is the Magnet Theater Podcast. It is brought to you by the Magnet Training Center. We have various classes in the Magnet Training Center and improvisation, musical improvisation, sketch comedy, a storytelling, you name it, we are teaching it. If that sounds interesting to you, please check us out online to find out more about that. Magnettheater.com. We also offer free weekly classes to introduce you to our methodology what was that you heard me right free weekly classes uh, you can find out again all about our classes and our shows on magnettheater.com the magnet theater podcast is available on soundcloud and itunes please rate us on itunes if you enjoy the show if you didn't enjoy the show you listened for too long my friends turn it off thank you very much everybody thank you branson reese bye gang bye Woo. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. 